Christopher and I, and all of us at TDPS, are still grieving the loss of my dear friend and our beloved premier party person, Anne Rice. But my mother's literary legacy gave birth to a diverse and wonderful community of readers and fans who continue to celebrate her work online. We invite you to join them on the Facebook page dedicated to Anne's legacy. That's where you'll receive the latest updates on new editions of her work and all the exciting changes coming to the AnneRice.com website. Also on the Anne Rice Facebook page, you can join the mailing list to receive all the latest news and information about her forthcoming celebration of life in New Orleans. That's at facebook.com slash Anne Rice fan page, no spaces. If you believe, as we do, that Anne's work is as immortal as her characters, then join us at Anne Rice fan page on facebook.com. See you there. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher... And Eric. Okay. I just had a handful of almonds before we started. That's good. That was a really bad idea. So you're going to have a coughing fit so any gonna... minute now from the, the little pieces of almond that'll be yes. come back and get you like lurking little monsters climbing back up your throat. Yeah. So vivid, Eric Shaw Quinn. You I'm make... telling you, I love those things, but it's the fiber that makes them good that comes back to get you. It's like I have had nut coughing fits that are worse than anything else. Let's call them nut fits. Nut fits. Nut fits. We've, we've coined a phrase. Somebody been, put it on some merch. I've been hashtag nut fitted. <laughs> hashtag nut fits. Listen. That's probably already taken by some other really weird sex group <laughs> that I'm now a part of that I didn't intend to, so not that not fitting. But you'll get invited to all their parties. Right. If I, As long as I don't have to wear some uh, lucite appliance on my dick, I yeah. will be okay. That sounds like a plan. Uh, okay, so let's let's uh, that's enough chit chat, as I like to say. <laughs> we've covered the loose dick appliance, so we've we've clearly got chit chat covered. We've started out our podcast in the most outrageous, weird way. We've made sure all my family members have turned it off in the car because they have children, as they have told me in the past about whether or not they listen to our podcast. I have children, Christopher, yeah, but their children are like <laughs> college age now. For heaven's sakes, I still don't think they listen. But um, <laughs> maybe their children listen in the dorm. Maybe so. We are are very old, as some people yeah, have Yeah, I'm sure out. that people in dorms think, oh, those old guys, <laughs> those, those old farts, I'm going to listen to car talk. <laughs> My dad's barbecue grill podcast. Right? <laughs> All right. Um, we are headed to Rhode Island this week, and that means oh, everybody uh, drink. We're not really going. <laughs> no, 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 we're not going <laughs> to Rhode like, Island. We're going to Rhode Island? <laughs> What's in Rhode Island? Why are we going to Rhode Island? Oh, okay. No. You mean on the show. Yes, on the okay. Show. I remember. It all comes flooding back to me now. 
Uh, it's a true crime TV club this but week. You actually, in the yes. everybody drink category, have a, a Rhode Island connection. In fact, one of my favorite Christopher Rice stories is Rhode Island based. Uh, it is. It, <laughs> don't know why this is everyone's favorite story, but this is everyone's favorite story. So I'm going to share it. So um, there was. I only went to Brown University for one year. I couldn't <laughs> Just be long contained. enough to get takeout. Just long enough to get takeout. And to move into a dorm that was just down the street from a Dunkin' Donuts, which, you know, if it was 10 o'clock at night and you were stoned, that was the greatest thing in the world. You could walk to Dunkin' Donuts. It would be pretty good even if you're not stoned and it's not 10 o'clock at night. Donuts are always a good thing. I think you need to be stoned to enjoy Dunkin' Donuts. I just got to be honest. I think they're dry. I do not think they're good donuts. Don't come for me. Don't at me. Don't party people. Just, I'm well, sorry. We're, we're from Louisiana, so we have a sort of rarefied take on rarefied. Rarefied. <laughs> <laughs> that was Freudian. A rarefied take on, on donuts. But yeah, Krispy Kreme is really more our school, but... But still, okay. it's still a donut place. It is. It's a donut place. It's sugar. It's chocolate. It's all the good things. Right. Okay. So I I walked there alone. I don't know why I was alone. I was. I'm, let me add here. I'm not. I was not a good stoned person. It, it didn't agree with me. I was the paranoid person you didn't want to get stoned with. So maybe they had thrown me out of the dorm room, and that's why I was alone right. at the donut you were shop. Already behaved as paranoid and whatever. You didn't need the enhancement. Exactly. Like being stoned just made me more of what I already was. It wasn't like an escape. Okay, so I you probably just wanted people to leave you alone. You put on your headset and went out to get donuts, walking down the street by yourself, listening to crushing Hans Zimmer music. <laughs> you know me so well. Okay, so I'm at Dunkin' Donuts. I'm alone at Dunkin' Donuts with the clerk, and she is a very um, severe woman. She has incredible nails, epic hair extensions, and she's dealing with stone college kids. Almost twenty four seven. Yeah. So we got to forgive her that we got we got to accept that that's part of her lived experience. So she offers me this elaborate special, like I just want like three donuts or something, and I was like, "Can I just have these three donuts? Like that's all I want." She's like, "Well, um, we're gonna throw all these out. You know, do you, do you, you don't want all these? Cause like we're gonna throw them out at the end of the night, and I can sell them to you for this and everything." And she goes into numbers, which is already not good for me, and it's all this sort of stuff. And I was like. I was like, no, thank you. Can I just have the three donuts? And she starts putting the three donuts in the bags, and then she spins around and she goes, you don't have any friends who could eat these? <laughs> I'm like, please just stop talking to me about all of these donuts and just give me my three donuts. And I was traumatized, and I still haven't gotten over it. Everyone I tell that story to thinks it's the funniest it's the thing in the world. It's the way you imitate her saying yeah. it. Say it again. You don't have any friends who could eat these? That's that's it. That's the selling point. It was for that like story. she turned into a street cop in New York in the 70s and I was holding. You know, it was like, oh my God. Like what? Yeah. She was really intense. And I went back to the dorm with my three donuts and I ate them. And I think when I told my story to the friends, they were like, you did actually have friends who can eat these. Why didn't you bring us Why these didn't you donuts? bring us more donuts? You have and a dorm just, full of friends. I was just stoned and an only child. Whatever. And what I'm surprised that you didn't run out of the place without buying the three donuts in the first place. I could see I also them. would love to actually have footage of what she actually said and the way it <laughs> sounded, as opposed to the performative version that we've all been treated to all these years. Just the comparison would probably be a real love. 
Don't you have friends who could eat these or something? Friends who could eat these, but it registered like a thunderous uh, reprimand. So, all right. So, if you have any connection to the Dunkin' Donuts in Providence, Rhode Island, on College Hill, and he would have bought those donuts. No, I'm saying work. Make some calls and see if they have some security footage from 1996 or 1997. I can't remember what semester it was. Because he was stoned. (laughs) I was stoned. Anyway, that's about as cheerful as it's going to get on this episode, because we've got a lot of malevolence in store on this true crime TV club. It is an interesting story, and it is, I think it's, I like the take, mm-hmm. because we do a lot of murder mm-hmm. on uh, true crime, but there are a lot of other crimes out there. Yes. And this is one of those weeks. Yes. And there, it's almost like there are two crimes here, two different types of crime here. Um, Vanity Fair Confidential is the series. Uh, Eric is a huge Vanity Fair magazine I fan. I mean, it is the only magazine that I've ever just read cover to cover on a regular basis all my life. The episode is called St. George's Hidden Dragons. It's season three, episode 10. We, Our conclusion, our, our committee has ascertained that it is uh, streamable in multiple locations because the streaming market is a mess right now. But it's on Max. It's on Discovery ID. And possibly, you were saying last week, for free on whatever the ID web component is. Okay. Um, uh, The contributing editor of this piece is named Benjamin Wallace, and as is de rigueur with these specials, he is sort of the narrator who takes us through this story, which is an epic saga of abuse and negligence, I would say. But it begins in Middletown, Rhode Island, which just looks... I've never been to Middletown. I don't know if they have a Dunkin' Donuts. It looks stunning. I'm sure at this point we're going to have a lot of correspondence with Dunkin' Donuts corporate over this issue, but let's get back to the special. Because I'm sure we're at the, the fulcrum of their, <laughs> uh, the axis of their marketing world. It's like, what do they think about us on Christopher and Eric talk about shit again this week? So we're in Middletown, Rhode Island, where we are treated to wide panoramic shots of one of the most beautiful buildings I've ever seen, which is apparently St. George's Boarding School. It looks like... A gothic cathedral sitting on the cliffs of the New England cliffs overlooking the Atlantic Ocean. It's just stunning. It is really a beautiful, beautiful place. I think you added cliffs. I don't think it was actually on any cliffs. I think it's almost practically right on the water. There are. There are cliffs. Okay. Well, we'll just see about that. Once we get through with this Dunkin' Donuts problem, we'll see about your cliffs. We'll ask the people from Dunkin' Donuts if there are any cliffs, (laughs) because I'm sure there's a Dunkin' Donuts somewhere if there are stone college students within walking distance. But it's important. This is a prep school. So this was started in the late 19th century to educate the sons, and we should underline sons, of the Gilded Age elite. The graduates include Bushes, Astors, and Vanderbilts. Uh, We're introduced to a woman named Catherine Finney, who is identified as an alumna of 1979, and she said she arrived her junior year after her family moved to Rhode Island from Connecticut. It was a gorgeous campus looking right out at the ocean. And in April uh, 2015, she and other alumni receive a disturbing letter from the current headmaster, Eric Peterson, saying they're aware of past sexual abuse by at least one staff member, and they've hired an independent investigator. So to summarize a bit here in terms of the structure of this special, we are going to be talking to adults uh, who are currently in their middle-aged adults who were essentially triggered by this letter that they received in 2015 
to remember experiences that they had at the school during their time there as students. In which the they, 70s. Which they repressed, essentially. Well, which they dealt with like it was the 70s. Like, really? Yeah. I went to high school in the 70s, and I can say pretty – like, it was, it was recognizable. Yeah. The, their response to – and the interactions with the behavior. The, like, there's stuff that – unfolded during my high school years, and I don't even mean really insidious or terrible stuff, that would just, people would lose their minds over. Like what? Today. Um, you know, like going away with teachers to beach houses for long weekends of people being drunk and partying and mm -hmm. carrying on. Like, I just think that that would people, you know, like, I don't know, probably maybe inappropriate stuff happened, probably between the students more than the students and the teachers, but I think the idea of an adult teacher being present in a lot of the circumstances where there was drinking or mm -hmm. pot smoking or cigarette smoking or anything else going on that was sort of like a no big deal kind of thing in my high school days would completely get everybody fired mm -hmm. today. I just, I can't imagine. Well, let's talk about Catherine's memory because she says what she recalled upon receiving the letter was that during her senior year in 1978, she sprained her ankle during a field hockey game and was told to go see Al Gibbs, the athletic trainer at St. George's. He was in his 60s. He was a Navy veteran with a gruff demeanor. The school had only turned co-ed a few years earlier, and there were no real facilities for girls at all. So in order to get to Al's office, they had to go through the boys' locker room. Which is already unbelievable. Which had a whirlpool training tub in it. And he tells Catherine upon her arrival to take off her clothes and get in the whirlpool. And she thought, why do I need to do that for my ankle? <laughs> I mean, right? unbelievable. Like, good for her for having that kind of presence of mind because, once again, the mindset in the time period was an adult said, take off your clothes and get in the whirlpool. So you kind of do. Jesus like, Christ. I was, you know, I've told the story of my experience in the YMCA mm -hmm. um, summer program where we were all told, you know, a group of adolescent young men were all told, okay, you know, get naked and go in the swimming pool, um, which was inside. And there was like a, there were like a stand so that you could watch, you know, like a, a, a bleachers, a bleachers like. up yeah. by the side of the pool behind glass. And, and people would, who lived at the YMCA or were staying at the YMCA would come down and sit in the bleachers and watch Jesus groups of Christ. naked young men swimming in the pool. It was like, and we didn't. We, that was the thing we were told to do. So that's what we did. There was no sort of like, my God, point of you know, like nobody considered that that was a thing we should go. Um, really, that seems like, huh? That's a really that's a choice. That's mm -hmm. that's a big choice. I'm not sure about that. And I I'm I think she's an exceptional person for in that time period having that kind of reaction to those kinds of instructions from an adult. Well, Just, and she gets in the tub, but she negotiates a pair of shorts out of him. Mm -hmm. So which, she's still topless. Right. He puts a heat lamp over her and says he's going to cover her eyes. Hi, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And everyone here at TDPS would like to congratulate my co-host and best friend, Christopher Rice, also known as steamy romance author C. Travis Rice, on the publication of Sapphire Storm, the third novel in his Sapphire Cove series. Sapphire Storm is the drama-filled tale of a forbidden romance 
that exposes old secrets and incurs the wrath of the powerful and the famous. It went on sale March 7th, along with the first two entries in the series, Sapphire Sunset and Sapphire Spring. It's available wherever ebooks are sold. Congratulations, C. Travis Rice, and congratulations, Christopher. So we've been talking about the painful memories in Catherine Finey that were triggered by right, this like letter. Covering your eyes while you're half naked with a strange man in the boys' locker room in a whirlpool tub is worse. Yeah. Like, what are you doing while I have my eyes covered? And how intense is this heat lamp that you're going to put on me? Like, what a fictitious story. And what does it have to do with her ankle? She is there for an ankle injury. It's just crazy. Then he tells her, and this was the part of it where I was like, oh, my God. He tells her he's going to teach her how to dry her breasts for the long-term preservation of breast tissue. Jesus. Which is, God. I mean, which has to have sounded like a load of shit even then. Yeah. She says she never set foot in Al's office again. I wouldn't have either. Yeah. So in kind of dual timeline here for the episode in May 2016 it was revealed that 67 private schools in New England had faced accusations of students being harassed or sexually abused in the climate of getting this letter about St. George's Catherine reaches out to some of her old friends 35 years later she's discovering that some of her closest friends went through the same experience she did but they didn't say anything to each other about it and at first she doesn't even want to talk to the investigator today but the more people who come forward, the angrier she gets. Mm -hmm. We go back to 1974. It's early September. Students are preparing to return to St. George's when the mother of a sophomore student asks for a meeting with then headmaster Tony Zane. The mother informs Zane that the, uh, her son is claiming the school's associate chaplain, Howard White, raped him. He was known in the community as Howdy, and he came there in 1971. He had previously worked at St. Paul's in New Hampshire, which is another very prestigious boarding school in New England. We interview Karen Lee Zinner, a reporter today for the Providence Journal. She describes, she gives some context to the story, which is that the young man who made the allegation was not one of the well-to-do kids, and he felt out of place at St. George's. We always hear this kind of dynamic in these stories. Well, it's the way you get you separate yeah. them from the herd. Howard White was taking him on trips, including to a hotel in Boston and a campground in Canada. In each of these locations, Howard sexually assaulted the young man when he was 14 years old. That's when the abuse began, and it continued for two years, and he told no one during that time. But the idea of an adult taking a student on a trip alone together, that's not the thing that... like. That's just not something that would still happen. That's right. the thing that I'm talking about. That's the difference that a lot in, when the you, in the enculturation. Yeah. yeah, that would have, nobody would have thought anything of that. Right. And now we would go, I'm sorry, you want to do what? Yeah. No, absolutely mm -hmm. not. Under no circumstances are you and a student going to go spend any time alone together outside of a supervised or, you know, it just, it's not a thing. So the student, when he does come forward, says that he did confront White about it and that White threatened him and said he'd make his life miserable. So at 16 years old, after two years of undergoing this abusive treatment, the boy decides to tell his parents. 
When Headmaster Tony Zane gets the story, he confronts Howdy White. White denies everything. Zane threatens to get lawyers involved, and that's when White admits it. And on September 12, 1974, Tony Zane engineers White's resignation, which means he tells the board of the school he's leaving because of unbecoming conduct with a male student, but he tells the student body that White is leaving for personal reasons. And here's the key. He never reports it to any state authorities. Mandatory reporting laws were in effect, which surprised me. I thought they were going to say, well, there was no law. But the mandatory reporting laws went into effect in the 1960s. So what that means is with no report, there was no investigation to determine if anyone other than this young man was abused. What that means is the headmaster willfully and knowingly broke the law. Yeah in order to protect the fundraising possibilities for the uni- for that school. It's mm-hmm. not a university, it's a prep school, but whatever, for that school for the following season in deference to this man who was raping children. In 2011, the Boston Globe found 11 cases of this, which are called passing the trash, in which schools got rid of an abuser or a molester, and those students moved on to another school. They I'm learned sorry, it from those, the Catholic Church. Exactly. And they, they went on to abuse students at other schools. Sure. Excuse me, my notes were wrong there. White went on to a girls' school, which I guess was his way of dealing with it, because I, there were no reports of him abusing females. No, I don't think there was any sense of that. But he then went on to a school in North Carolina, and this is where the story took on a dimension that I had never heard before. Because what happened was he was passed off, passing the trash, and he ended up in uh, financially disadvantaged communities where he began abusing a young man like Forrest Parker Jr., who we meet, who was quite literally an orphan, who ended up in foster care. And he was a foster parent. Right. So um, Forrest today has hired a lawyer, Lito Copley, who speaks on his behalf in the special, but Forrest is also interviewed. And this is a young man who grew up in abject poverty. His mother was fighting cancer. His stepfather was an abusive alcoholic. He was in and out of foster homes. At 15, he's living at the Cross North School in North Carolina. But when it shuts down in the summer, he has nowhere to go. So he spends the summer with Howard White. Um, Howard takes him on a trip to D.C. It's the exact same story. He takes him out of town. They're in a hotel room together. He abuses him. He forces himself on him. He rapes him. Um, And he's dealing with a child who, as in the previous situation, uh, is extremely disadvantaged, extremely impressed by the fact that they're in a motel with a swimming pool, he points out. He'd never seen a motel with a swimming pool. He's got his own room. He's bought him clothes. He's bought him gifts. He's feeling like he's kind of won the lottery, and it's like the trade-off is getting raped by this guy. So... um, uh, and Forrest thinks that if he says no, he'll be kicked out on the street, uh, even though he tries to fight the guy off on several occasions. The abuse continues, and then he realizes it's not going to stop, but when he turns 16, he no longer has to live with this guy anymore. He can go out on his own, and I guess that's a result of the North Carolina state laws. It's, I guess, yeah, yeah, some sort of age of consent or something where he could make his own choices about where he habitates. So he tells no one about this until 2016 when he sees the article in the paper with the allegations against White and St. George's. And in March of that year, he finally reports the abuse to North Carolina. And North Carolina is one of those states, and a lot of this was in response to the Catholic sex abuse scandal. There is no statute of limitations on felony sexual abuse. 
So uh, he's able to bring charges, and in October of 2016, the Episcopal Church removes Howard White from the priesthood. So a mere, what, 30, 40 years I later from the original when Zane could have reported him to the authorities and was legally required to. And it turns out White is just one of six former St. George's employees accused of this kind of abuse. Uh, and the we talked to an expert in this sort of... Uh, I'm, I, skipped past her name. Carol Shakeshaft is interviewed. She's a professional, a professor of educational leadership at Virginia Commonwealth University, and she said these abusers are commonly found among those faculty members who are going to have just cause, if you will, to spend a lot of time with students outside of class. Mm -hmm. The drama teachers, the music teachers, the coaches, the people who are doing a lot of extracurriculars with the student body. Which, I would hasten to add, has nothing to do with people pursuing those fields. It has to do with pedophiles gravitating to areas where they can target children and get them alone and isolate them and that sort of thing. The two things are not actually equivalent. they're not. They're not. Uh, 1983, we meet, we are introduced to, we don't meet him in person, Franklin Coleman, a choir master who taught music theory and history. He was assigned as an advisor to Bryce Traster, who's a former student who is interviewed, and he describes how Franklin started what sounds like just sort of a social group at first, but it was all boys. It was invitation only. They would gather together at his apartment and drink. They would wear... Uh, suits and ties and talk about jazz and classical music. The kids would be given vodka. And then gradually, Franklin would target some of them and start to up the ante. He would invite them to come over alone. He would answer the door in his underwear. A.K.A. grooming. Yes. He would show, he showed some of them gay porn. Like, yeah, this is really grooming. This, this is, is the actual grooming. Actual textbook grooming. is grooming. an actual thing, not what Governor DeSantis in Florida has tried to appropriate it as. It, this is actual grooming. Um In 1988, finally a student comes forward. He says that he and Coleman slept in a bed together on a trip, that Coleman once gave him a naked massage, showed him gay pornography. The guidance counselor the student reported this to went to the new headmaster, who was in fact Tony Zane's successor. So the fish is continuing to rot even with a new head. It's multiple rotting heads in the fish. They come up with a settlement agreement that they don't disclose publicly. And Coleman, in fact, agrees not to sue the school in exchange for a payment of $10,000. So molest a student at St. George's and you get paid. You get a bonus. He goes on to work at other schools. He now lives in New Jersey. He is not interviewed. But there's a photograph of him that looks fairly present day and looks like maybe Vanity Fair actually did the photo shoot, but he's still not interviewed. Yeah, maybe it was for some promotional thing for some choir work he was doing. I don't know, but yeah, yeah, clearly... A problem. So um, in, we get another story. We get another victim. Her name is Winnie Farrar. She went to the school in 1974, two months before her 16th birthday. She is in the second class of girls to be dropped off there. So at this point, the school is 300 boys and 40 girls. And as we said earlier, there were no facilities for girls. The teachers, in her opinion, also made it clear that they didn't want any girls there. They were not about this. She has a hard time fitting in, but she enjoys sports. She becomes a star player. It hampered their boy-raping activities, I I guess. I don't know what their complaint was, but apparently it was a huge problem to have a co-educational campus. She has almost the same experience as Catherine at the start of the special. Identical. She is injured. She is sent to Al Gibbs. Uh, He is way more forceful with her than he was with Catherine. He tries to kiss her on the mouth. He forces himself on her. He warns her not to tell anyone. 
He says if she does, she'll be kicked off the sports teams, which is her only way of fitting in. Um, and the, the, he continues to molest her throughout this session. Um, she's seriously injured. Like, she's, she ends up there. She snaps her ankle. And he puts her on the table. And she ends up running away with that, a snapped ankle. And I, I'm surprised the special itself didn't make more of that. I was sitting there thinking maybe they wanted the impact of it to just sink in. But, like, yeah, she ran away from this man with a snapped ankle. It I was just, like, I was astonished. And, and still nothing. She plays with injuries. She will not go back to this man. She, she will not quit sports and she will not go back to this man. So she continues to play with injuries. I just think that was the most horrifying detail, almost as bad as running with the snap. Absolutely. She never tells anyone about Gibbs. Gibbs continues to assault girls until the victims start to speak out. In 1980, a girl goes to the headmaster claiming she's been molested by Gibbs. The headmaster discovers there are other girls and he fires Gibbs. But he gives him an annual stipend and writes him a letter of fucking recommendation. Oh, my God. So we're back to 2015 when the alumni got the letter from the current headmaster in 2015 acknowledging that there had been a history of sexual abuse and an investigation was underway. Winnie gets this letter. Her memories start flooding back. She experiences fury, as I would. The results of the investigation are hundreds of pages long. There are 61 victims identified between the years of 1970 and 1989. There are at least six faculty or staff who committed abuse. More than half of these victims were assaulted by Al Gibbs. Gibbs died in 1996 and never spoke publicly about the allegations and apparently never faced charges, or if he did, they're not mentioned in the special, so I doubt he did. Unlike North Carolina, Rhode Island has a statute of limitations in these cases, and so no charges were ever filed. I just answered my own question uh, against any of the alleged abusers at St. George's. But in 2016, Howard White is charged with five counts of assault and battery in the state of Massachusetts for sexually abusing a St. George's student in Boston in 1973. The police investigation into Forrest Parker's allegations against White in North Carolina is pending as of this TV special, which I think was a few years ago, dated, so we so might yeah. want to check online and see how that spun out. But Jesus Christ. But, but I had never heard this narrative of this privileged environment gets rid of this abuser and he goes off into less privileged environments and begins targeting increasingly disadvantaged young people. I just thought that was horrifying to be that young man and to well, know that this... it's the same thing that we were talking about earlier with people being music instructors or yeah. drama teachers or, or athletics coaches or whatever. It's people looking for... It's criminals looking for the place that where they can most... They can best produce their crimes. It's like when they asked john dillinger or whoever it was about robbing banks why why do you rob banks and he said because that's where they keep the money yeah you know it's like why are you doing in this working in this field it's because that's where they keep the children right. you know like it it has nothing to do with a commitment to a love of sports or no. theater or music or whatever it has to do with wanting to the most advantageous circumstances in which to victimize these poor children right. 
I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at facebook.com slash the dinner party show. No, I meant in the car. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? Well, yes, we did some Googling during our break because we wanted to see what was the status of Howard White's trials. And we found that he pled guilty in the Boston case. Uh, We were not able to find the status of the North Carolina charges that Forrest Parker Jr. brought against him. But we do know the state was trying to extradite him after he got out of jail, with good time included, in Massachusetts. He pled guilty, uh, as I just said. So he served, I think, 18 months, something like that. And then, but we don't know what happened in North Carolina. So if you're inclined to Google this case, party people. Or you're in North Carolina and you know something about this trial, we are very interested. We hope that Forrest Parker has gotten some justice Mm -hmm. um, from this old case and this rather egregious. I mean, good for him for standing up for himself in the moment as a 16-year-old young man. But my goodness, I hope that he has been able to redress some of this with with Howard and maybe even um, civilly with... um, the irresponsible fox at St. George. The thing that is really... Uh, one more thing that we want to mention is there was a female accuser uh, of Howard White's as well, that Howard White also abused women or was alleged to have abused women, which, young women, underage girls. Sorry. Which is, yeah, I guess worth yeah. noting because I, as I've heard said in and around this topic that it's about children, not about gender. Mm-hmm. That that's the attraction of. To what extent is this is about power? Like in that this spoiler alert, this is not going to be the last instance of this kind of abuse that we talk about for Back to School Month. Unfortunately, we are a true crime podcast here, but this is about power, right? This is about I, you know, like I I am reluctant to speculate because it is something that I don't understand. Mm-hmm. Like I yes, I guess it's as much about power as as is, it is anything else. I, I think that there is a power dynamic in a lot of sexual interaction, nefarious and otherwise. Right. So I think that's always a part of, like, there are people, like the Bill Cosby situation where people drug people and have sex with people who are unable to resist them. Mm-hmm. That's not, it wasn't pedophilia, but it was its own kink. There was some sense of, and there was even as we talked about, um, uh, particularly um, 
Ted Bundy mm-hmm. and a, a couple of weeks in the green a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the Green River trials right. there was some sense of having sex with even dead people or dying people people who are physically unable to resist you right. so I I I suppose that is that can be a part of it as well like mm-hmm. a, a child is unable to resist you I I don't understand the attraction I I don't understand the situation so I don't want to reduce it to a yeah. denominator that that I'm unaware of. I, well, I, this is my, my motivation. This is my motivation to... for saying that is that the the bigots of the world, particularly in response to the Catholic sex abuse scandal, tried to claim that this was homosexual infiltration of the priesthood. And I, and and the the counter, I think, the sophisticated psychological counter to that is that this is not about homosexuality. This is about a a, a criminal form of sexuality. It's not about I I just get off on young people. I get off on someone who is highly submissive and cannot get away in, in ways that you were just describing, but looks up to me as a false authority figure because I have presented myself as that. You know, and I think that's all in there. But you could also make the case that that is no more relevant than an interest in drama or athletics, that that is what the predator adopts in order to get right, to Right, it is somebody victim. who wants to have sex with children. I, yeah. that's, that's the, it's like that, that episode of... of of South Park, where, where, yeah, yeah, but dude, you fuck little kids. You know what I mean? Like, it's mm-hmm. just, like, that's the common denominator, and all those other things are maybe interesting speculations. But it's like saying somebody is an alcoholic because they had a bad childhood. It's right. like, so everybody with a bad childhood is an alcoholic? No, those things are not related. An alcoholic may have had a bad childhood, but they may have had an ideal one. Yeah. Alcoholism is not related to that. It is a different circumstance. It is a its own mental mm-hmm. twist. Yeah. I'm not conflating alcoholism with pedophilia, but I am saying trying to explain mental illness, which I think this is what we are talking about, in terms that match other more easily understandable yeah, it's ca- causation versus correlation. I, I just right, yeah. I, I don't know. I right. I don't think there is any way to know. The the mania seems to be about wanting to have sex with children. If there's a motivation to that, that might be interesting, but I doubt it. I think it has more to do with wanting to have sex with children yeah. than it does to do with any of those other those are all probably part of the gratification mm-hmm. that the pedophile gets, I would right. guess. But I don't know that they are the motivating factor. Yeah. The Green River Killer believed he was cleaning up the world by killing well, prostitutes. But right. that doesn't mean that we that don't was... want to get lost at the level of their self justification. Yeah, right. right. I see what you're saying. I absolutely see that. I I think that what is um what is so shocking to me is the conversation we were having earlier about how different the climate was in the nineteen seventies, as you were saying. You know, and I think um the thing that I was put in mind of, which I feel is a more recent development, is the inability to see men as victims of sexual abuse, the inability to sort of equate their victimhood with female victims. Now, granted, the female victims in this were also treated terribly, but at the same time, there was a more, there seemed to be a more recent development of recognizing that young women could be could be greatly harmed by this, and believing simultaneously that boys should just get over it, that they were different animals. And it didn't affect them as much, and it didn't traumatize them. And I think it took a long time for these adult men like Forrest Barker to come forward and talk publicly. The shame for them seemed to be a little bit greater, if if not a, a l- well, largely greater than what I women would, were feeling. I would also include in that discussion the um, enormous impact of our absolutely overwhelming 
um, homophobia in our culture yeah. to have participated in willingly or unwillingly in same-sex activity would be a source of enormous shame yeah. and a part of the reason that those boys might have remained quiet right. because they because of the discrimination against them for having participated in much the same way that a woman might remain quiet because she's now soiled or somehow right. less because she is no longer virginal material. The boy might have had the reluctance to report or to discuss it because there was a participation, you know, as I say, willingly or unwillingly yeah. in a homosexual activity, which is the worst thing that you could possibly be. Mm-hmm. For a long time in our culture, and I think in a lot of corners of our culture, still kind of yeah. um, is the case. And I, I think that also helps shape the lack of narrative, I guess, really, in this particular topic is that people were reluctant to speak up for a variety of reasons, but not least of which um, prejudice, that pre-existing prejudice in the culture itself. Mm -hmm. The other thing that really struck me in, in the story is there is no discussion of holding people like the headmaster yeah. legally accountable for their behavior. It's like, but is he in jail? Because that's who I would put in jail. Like, right. absolutely, the, the rapists and the pedophiles. And yes, absolutely, let's go, let's go get those folks and uh, lock them up. But, but I think that the the institutionalization of this mm -hmm. came from those people who had a completely different agenda, the reputation of the school, the need to raise money mm -hmm. based on that reputation and the need to recruit new high-ticket um, students. You can't tell them that it's an unsafe environment they're bringing their children to, so you don't want to get out that, right, absolutely. that teachers and staff are abusing the children once you pay a fortune for them to be here because we're actually supposed to be taking care of your kids mm -hmm. and not, you know, raping them. Right. Um, so I am astonished at the, at the lack of accountability in that group because right. to me that's the bigger problem. Mm -hmm. Like obviously pedophilia is a problem and – I think there's there's not a lot of debate around mm -hmm. that. I I think we're all in on that yes. particular one. But um, and even then mm -hmm. we we really were. But the problem was actually caused by that headmaster. Yeah, all of these problems were actually caused by the headmaster. He sent the choir master onto other environments. Forrest Parker was people. abused because of the headmaster. Forrest Parker would yeah. not have been abused. And he says so in this special right. that if it if that headmaster had actually done something, it would none of those things would ever have happened to him in the first place because White would already have been in prison. It was already against the law. And yeah. reporting is a part of that that law. Like I've you know, I've had my own experience of in a workplace environment where somebody mm -hmm. said that confided in me that there was they they were feeling some pressure some sexual pressure from another member of staff mm -hmm. and i and they said they, i don't want you to tell anybody and i actually had to ask that i be sent to the lawyers of this organization that mm -hmm. i was working for to talk to them cuz i i said i don't know what i'm supposed to do in this right. environment and they said you have to report, report this yeah. like you don't have a choice like right. because you are 
you know, further up the chain of command in this particular uh, mm-hmm. company that you're working for, you actually have to say something because it was a very weird situation because I had said I won't tell anybody you right. know, because but it seemed to me that wasn't necessarily my choice to make. And it's not. Yeah. And I think that's good. But it was already the case there. Mm-hmm. And he still didn't do anything. I, and repeatedly, apparently, in a lot of different circumstances, did nothing to protect children going on in favor of his institutional obligations yeah. to St. George, which to me, that's the dragon yes. that this article is talking about. I think you're going to run into the issue of there being criminals, no matter, you know, where where you go or right. what but part we'll, of strike. Where's but the enforcement mechanism? Aiding, yeah. aiding and abetting criminals yeah. is an entirely different circumstance. And that was the problem that was created at St. George was this environment of we will look the other way mm-hmm. when people are abusing children. Like, yeah. really? That's mm-hmm. That seems... That doesn't seem like like I think the the choir master was paid ten thousand dollars to keep his mouth shut not about to, other people about to not suing no right. about it having happened in the first place oh okay, like they weren't right. worried that he was going to sue because if he'd sued he'd had to have say why he was let go and the, he was never going to say that they gave him that ten thousand dollars to shut him up they gave Bush or whatever the guy's name was the the horrible molesting Howard White. Go- oh Gibbs. Gibbs. Gibbs, yes. They gave Gibbs the um the 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 stipend to shut him up. That was hush money that they were paid. Don't talk about this. I'll give you a stipend and a good recommendation because that's what the that's the institutional objective is to keep this quiet because if it gets out that our students are being abused, parents will pull their kids out of the school, tuition right, right. will be cut off, and donations will fall. But the thing, maybe we're saying different versions of the same thing. But do you think the stipend is also is like okay, Gibbs saying to them, you can go after me and say what I did publicly. I'm going to out these seven other teachers who are doing the same thing, like the Chris Cuomo thing where he got ousted for, and then he outed Jeff Zucker for having an oh. undisclosed. Closed relationship I with don't a think so. Yeah. I, I think that if the, he had told them there were seven other teachers that they would all have gotten the same deal from yeah. Zane. He yeah. would have fired them but given them a stipend and a yeah. letter of recommendation because his objective was had nothing to do with the safety of the students, and that's the dragon. Unbelievable. Like, because there's going to be criminals. It's yeah. just the, you know, are we going to do something about it or are we going to aid and abet the criminals? Like, mm-hmm. what are your real objectives here? Yeah. And that's... The part of the story that really seems to be missing, there's no articles about, you know, the Zane being convicted in Boston of Mm -hmm. not firing um, White when he could have for him going on and molesting other people or being sued or the school being sued or whatever. That's the that's the level of of enforcement and. Justice that doesn't seem to be included. In I don't this know story. why it wouldn't be. I was I was tempted to say, you know, with Vanity Fair Confidential, with People Magazine Investigates, which are shows we do often, we know that there is an article that we can go and find that inspired the episode. And so I'm tempted to read the Vanity Fair article if it can be found online. But it's a big detail to leave out if it is in the article. I would be shocked and disappointed that they I didn't think put I've that read in. this article and I don't think it's in there. Jesus. Like I would be surprised. Is like, he dead? That's Maybe the, he was dead. I, the school still exists. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I think this investigation and that letter 
was all part of an ongoing settlement with somebody. That's what I thought, that a legal action of some sort was— Or an yeah. effort to mitigate liability so that they, when the lawsuits started rolling in, right. they would have some basis to to settle them or to show, demonstrate their willingness to do something about it and yeah. not still a part of, you know, that complicity in the crime. But it is a really— it was a very strange crime story. You know, mm-hmm. I was like, yes, these are the people technically committing these crimes, but yeah. I, I I do not see them as being the most culpable in the the in the, the commission of the crimes themselves. Like mm-hmm. if you don't allow the criminals to continue to, yeah. to work, I, I, I assume it's part of the outrage towards the Catholic church or oh, similar issues is they would just transfer the priest to another location and they were never reported or prosecuted or in any other way because it would reflect badly on the church and who wants that? Yes, you know, absolutely. We need to be able to fleece poor people out of their well, there, there's money. A, there's another people out of their money. There's another layer of that, which is they have this mad belief, this almost cult-like belief that they are above the law, the Catholic Church, and that they have a mechanism for redemption that, that fallen sin and sinful priests could follow and that they would decide if they were recovered or not. There was an interesting article in the in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago, talking about the Pope coming after the Mm. American wing of the Catholic Church saying that they have lost their mission, Mm -hmm. that their mission is about tending to the sick and the poor and, you know, being Christians, Mm -hmm. as opposed to uh, taking away women's rights and taking uh, injuring lesbian and gay people and Mm -hmm. the sort of thing that that they've become overly focused on. But I thought it was a really— you know, far be it from me to be singing the praises of that particular or any um, organized religious institution, but it was the first sign of any kind of reason mm-hmm. uh, on that from that particular quarter that I had seen recently, and it's coming from the top of the organization. Mm-hmm. Pope Francis actually said, "This is not your mission. You are you have lost your way. You are." It really was. It was not a kind or a softly worded kind of denunciation Mm, of the obsession with the wrong things. Like, this is not what we're supposed to be doing. We should leave people alone about – should give Nancy Pelosi her communion and President Biden his communion. Stop threatening people with being excommunicated from the church for not agreeing with you but instead helping people who need your help. That that is actually the Christian mission. I, I. I, you know, again, not never going to be a big fan of organized religion, but I'd like to hear more talk like that. Yeah, absolutely. And this is one of those circumstances, like yeah. where you could actually step in and do the right thing to look after people mm-hmm. rather than just doing what's best for the fucking church. So next week. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have a transition, believe me. Okay. I, next week we will be exploring another religion, which is high school football in the state of Texas. Oh. Because I have heard on so many occasions the other religion in Texas is high school football. Yes. So on episode 199 of our show, you know what that means? We're one episode away TikTok. from episode 200. I believe it. Uh, We will be doing a true crime TV club devoted to an episode of a show called Murder Under the Friday Night Lights, season one, episode two, streamable on Discovery Plus and possibly also on Max and possibly also on the free uh, Discovery ID website that you always point out. Right. 
The episode is called Where is Tom Brown? This is a very well-known story. This is on its way to becoming a kind of uh, one of those true crime stories that people are going to be talking about for a long time. I have listened to a long-form podcast on this. I think so. Yeah, this is it is quite really, the story. And, uh, yeah, we will see if the show left out anything that they covered in the podcast, which should be interesting. Interested to hear. So that will be next week. Until then and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.